Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. What can I say about David Morris that he wouldn't say about himself? I can get away with that because in my ministerial life, I don't think I've had a better friend. And of course, you know, those of you who go back a ways with GCA know that David Morris was one of the men who ordained me into the ministry. But we became friends years before that. I've told the story before that he was preaching out in Mount Zion, out in East Tennessee, And uh, there were bad tape recordings made, and he was teaching the doctrines of grace, and I was just still dealing with the doctrines of grace, and I was kind of stuck on limited atonement. And I had to go out to my car to hear the tape, because it was so bad. And I had to turn on just the right speaker, because the left speaker was all noise and static. And I had to turn the volume all the way up to hear what he was saying. And he was teaching on limited atonement. And I sat in the, I think it was 95 outside that day. I was baking, sitting in my car in the driveway with the doors open, listening to him. I didn't know who he was, but the tape had rather providentially fallen into my hand through a mutual friend. And I was listening to him teach, and when he got done, I turned off the tape and said, it can't be any other way. This week, at the uh, Embracing the Truth conference, on Thursday morning, I'll be teaching on limited atonement. And I owe that to the fact that I listened to David. And then one day I was painting the eaves on my house, and I was listening to tapes of the Bunyan conference. And Fred Zaspel was speaking, and Fred got done, and somebody asked a question. And when he got up to ask the question, somebody in the group said, oh, he's coming to help you. And David said, he doesn't need any help. That's what I heard. And as soon as I heard his voice, I went, that's that guy. That, that's that guy. Who's that guy? He's premillennial, he's sovereign great. Who's that guy? I called John Riesinger, and I said, who's David Morris? And John said, oh, you're going to like him, because he could see that we were two peas in a pod. He gave me David's phone number. I called David up and said, you don't know me, but, and I told him my story. Providentially, he was going to be in Franklin, Tennessee just a couple weeks later. I said, well, I know you're coming there to speak at that church and stuff. Any chance we could get together? And he said, yes, absolutely. Couldn't have been friendlier. We had lunch at Luby's Cafeteria. And we spent most of the meal saying, you believe that? (laughs) Me too. In fact, I've described that meal over and over as it was me and David trying to find anything to disagree about. (laughs) And we really couldn't do it. So we became friends. We got to talking regularly and conversing. We, We both became writers for Sound of Grace chat group. We were like tag team. And so the years have gone by. And then he ordained me, and now we're speaking at conferences together, and there's just nobody that I like being around more in the preaching world than being around David Morris. I say all that to say, it makes me really happy when he comes by here, because not only is he a really, really solid exegete, not only does he handle the word really, really well, but he's my buddy. (laughs) So that's good. Because I'll tell you, in this walk, in this job, you need friends. Yeah? That's right. Yeah. 
So uh, I'm glad that God has given me some friends in the preaching ministry. Now, this week is the Embracing the Truth Conference. Tuesday night, David will be lecturing. So if you want to go over Tuesday night to the Gladeville Conference, and then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday morning, I'll be teaching on the doctrines of grace, along with Roger Skeppel in the evenings. David will be preaching then Friday morning, I think. Come over there. There's no Wednesday meeting this week. Do not come here because there is no Wednesday meeting. So, all right, we are going to sing one more quick song. Give me an F chord and a B flat and a C chord. And then after we finish this song, David's going to come up and preach to you. I give honor to our great and our worthy God, of whom we've sung just now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one eternal God, I give him glory, honor this morning, in the trinity of his blessed and sacred persons. And it's good to see you. I'm glad to be with you. It is always a privilege to be with my beloved brother, Jim McClarty, and now with his beloved bride as well. And I am thankful to be with you, my brothers and sisters. It is always good to renew fellowship one more time this side of the glory. And God's been mighty good to me. And so I honor him. When Jim said, what can you say about David Morris? The first thought on my mind was nothing good. (laughs) And anything he said that was worthy, all glory be to God for it. Because there is not that I have that I've not received. Everything I am and have that has any goodness about it at all, it smacks of Jesus Christ alone. And so I honor him. I'm going to try to preach, but for some reason I just feel a little bit emotional. (laughs) I can't tell you fully why that is. But the goodness of God to meet with us already has been very precious. And I'm glad for a sense of his presence. You remember what Moses begged God for when God said to Moses, you take those people you brought out of Egypt up. And Moses said, Lord, how shall it be known that we are your presence, your people rather above all the peoples of the earth? If your presence doesn't go with us. And I think Steve said it well when he led us in prayer at the beginning. I'm glad for the presence of God among his people. Not because we came to church, but because his church came together in this meeting place. Well, I want to ask you if you would to turn your Bibles, turn in your Bibles, please, to Ephesians with me. And I would like to spend some time with you this morning in Ephesians chapters 4 and 5. Generally, when we've been with you, I've taken one specific passage and expounded that. And this morning, I'm going to do a little bit differently. I'm still going to seek to expound Scripture, but I want to try to do it in a, I don't want to call it a shotgun kind of way, 
but I don't want to worry any of you because I'm going to have five texts today. And some of you know that I can go a while with one. So I don't want any of you to worry that you're not going to get out of here till after five o'clock, you know. And, yeah. <laughs> Who said that? Oh, you were too close to Gladys. I thought it had to be Gladys, Renee. I, but I want us to spend some time this morning looking in the book of Ephesians, the letter of Paul to the Ephesian believers, and thinking together about the believer's walk. The believers walk. And we want to begin in chapter 4, and I'll read in your hearing verses 1 through 6 just to give us some setting. And we'll think about those opening verses 1 through 3, and then the Lord willing, move on. But I'd like for us to, again, consider that together this morning the believers walk. And let's read there, beginning in chapter 4 and verse 1. As many of you are aware, I'll be reading from the English version of 1611. And uh, some of you, have, as I've jokingly said before, haven't heard the language of Zion in a while, so you'll get to hear it this morning. Thank you, Jeff, for laughing. Nobody else is, I don't believe. But, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, let's begin at verse 1 and we'll read through verse 6. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering. Forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We trust our God will add His blessing today, His stamp and seal to His written and read word. His inspired and preserved word. May we just bow before him once again in prayer. Father, we look to you in the name of thy worthy son. And as we do, we ask afresh the cleansing of his blood. And we ask as well the blessing of thy spirit as we seek to open the scriptures. And we acknowledge the reality that the hymn writer spoke of when he said, All is vain unless thy spirit, O thou holy one, come down. Father, we ask that you'd bless your people with manna from heaven this morning, that you might speak by your word as you alone can do. Father, we thank you for the felt sense of your presence here among us today. And I pray that that would continue as we look at the word. Magnify Christ in us, we pray, as we look at your scriptures in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we give you by way of our topic this morning, The Believer's Walk, I, I want to just give a brief overview of the book of Ephesians in a way that it's been outlined. And it, it seems to outline well as a letter. Some portions of Scripture don't do that. They seem to not yield that nut. They, the husk stays and you can't really kind of follow the synthesis of that particular book maybe. But with Ephesians, it's a little different. Someone has spoken in terms of Ephesians this way. Sit, walk, stand. Another is described it this way. The wealth, walk, and warfare of the child of God. Both of those outlines are the same really. Sit, walk, stand. The wealth, walk, and warfare of the child of God. For when you begin Ephesians, you find the apostle, after his opening greetings to God's people there at Ephesus, the apostle goes into this extended Blessing, this extended benediction of God in which he praises the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And as he does that, he blesses the Father for choosing us in Christ. He blesses the Son for his redemption, the redemption, forgiveness we have through his blood. And then he blesses the Spirit who is the seal, the earnest. So much even there. I'd love to unpack it, but we've got to keep moving where we started here in Ephesians 4. He blesses God for that. And then he goes on to continue, if you will, as he speaks of God as the one who is, as verse 3 of chapter 1 says, blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He goes on to unpack some of those spiritual blessings for us. And we find as we come to chapter 2 that we've been made to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, honestly, it looks to me like you're sitting in a chair in a church building in Smyrna, Tennessee this morning, not seated in heavenly places. And yet the reality is because of our union with Christ, 
You and I who are saved have been made to sit in him who is our head and representative. I used to be in union with Adam. And that union was a a union of death. It was a union of sin, a union of condemnation. But now by the sovereign grace of God in Christ Jesus, I'm in union with Christ. And that union is a union of righteousness and life and God's glory. And you and I, because of that, have this wealth that is ours in which we've been made to sit together in heavenly places in Christ. I don't always enjoy that position like I should. I don't always appropriate the wealth that is given to me in Christ. And yet it is ours because of who we're in has nothing to do with me. That's good news. It has everything to do with the one who's my head and my representative. As the apostle traces that out, there's there's so much that's worth speaking about there, but that's not our focus today. The apostle having spoken of that wealth or the fact that we've been made to sit in Christ in heavenly places, he goes on to speak of the walk of the believer. And those two outlines we gave you, that word is the word that occurs in both in the middle there. The walk of the believer. As it were, the apostle by inspiration speaks about our wealth. And then he speaks to God's people and says, now, let me tell you what you're to do with that. Let me tell you how that is to translate into life. And brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but that's where I have my problem. Kind of like Mark Twain, the humorist said, the satirist, and I'm not sure all he meant by this, but he said, it's not the things in the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the things I do understand. And that's the way I am so often. Those things that kind of clean my plow, you know, those things that kind of get down too close to where I live. Uh, as the ladies that heard the man preaching one time, you, you may remember the story. They, uh, he was preaching, you know, and the old ladies in the amen corner, he was saying, now this dancing and all of that business, it's got to stop. And they said, amen, brother, amen, brother. He said, I'll tell you this movie going and all that, it's got to stop. Amen, brother, amen, brother. And I I'll tell you all oh, this running around and they got to stop. Amen, brother. Amen, brother. He's in all this dip and snuff. It's got to stop. And one of them said to the other, he's done stop preaching and he's gone to meddling. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the way the word of God is. And not, not those things, mind you, but, but the word of God will meddle in our lives. The word of God will, will begin to speak to where we ought to walk, how we ought to live, how our lives should be impacted By truth. And that's what the apostle says. You see, there's always a so what to the truths of Scripture. There's always an impact that it's to make as my life is impressed so that I become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what this portion from chapter 4 verse 1 on really to about verse 9 of chapter 6 points out. Now that last word is stand or or warfare for as Paul comes to chapter 6 verse 10 he says finally my brethren be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And he goes on to speak about the battle that you and I have. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the spiritual forces of wickedness that are in high places, the darkness of this world that is spiritual in character. And as the apostle speaks about that, it's as though, although it's at the end of the letter, it's as as though almost seemingly a postscript. He says, hold on, My, my details about the Christian life would not be complete if I didn't tell you. We're not just sitting in Christ Jesus. We're not just to be walking in Christ Jesus. There's also a warfare. And we're to stand, having taken the whole armor of God to ourselves. And so that epistle ends with that thought. And we want to look at these words that speak about the walk of the child of God. So let's go back chapter 4 real quick, verses 1 through 3. And if you will, I'm, I'm going to try to alliterate. I do that some, and I hope that it won't be too 
artificial, but I want us to think first of all of what I'd give you as a walk of dignity. Notice again, verse one of chapter four. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. That word vocation, of course, is the word calling as many of you probably have it in your Bibles. But the word worthy in Latin, it's dignus. Uh, the word dignity comes from that word. And the apostle here speaks of a walk for the child of God that will in a right, in a proper sense, dignify the call of grace that has come to our lives. You see, as we go back to chapter two, the apostle speaks about it. He talks about where all of us were before we we came to be in Christ Jesus. We were all in the cemetery. You remember those words. I know many of you can quote them with me. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein ye once walked according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. That's where we were. I was in the graveyard. I was in the cemetery. I was dead. I wasn't seeking God. I was active, yes, but I was active in all kinds of sin and unrighteousness. There was no love for God, really. There was no desire to walk in his truth. My idea was keep that junk to yourself. But oh, a call came my way. I wasn't looking for it. As we sometimes say about the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, he wasn't going to a Billy Graham crusade. <laughs> no, no. Where, what was he doing? What are those in your, what's that in your hand, Paul? Papers. What for? To persecute those followers of that blasphemer, that imposter Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. You catch up with him three days later, what's he doing? In the synagogue at Damascus, he's preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. What happened? A call came to Paul, an effectual call, a powerful call, a life-giving call, a call that brought Paul out of the spiritual death he was in, in those religious rags that he was wearing as a Jewish rabbi, a call of grace, and that call has come to us. That's the vocation of the gospel. Now, now you've got to remember there's an outward call that comes that's not effectual necessarily. Every time the gospel's preached, there's an outward call that goes to sinners in which they are called to repent and believe. And yet, that call only becomes effectual by the operation of the Spirit of the living God who in mercy speaks to the dead in sin and they're made alive. What a glorious work it is. I like the way Mr. Wesley put it in that hymn, And Can It Be? Some of you may remember that stanza that says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening, a life-giving ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. That's what grace did. I like the way Mr. Wesley put it. You know, Mr. Wesley, Charles was the brother of John, the founder of Methodism. And it's said of Mr. Charles Wesley one time that Rabbi John Duncan, a preacher of that, contemporary preacher of that time, asked Mr. Wesley after hearing one of his hymns, where's your Arminianism now, friend? (laughs) I can't help to think that about that fourth stanza, you know. For there you see man in death, in darkness, in prison. And yet that call of grace comes and all of a sudden everything's changed. I'm alive and the light's on and I'm free. The shackles are gone and I'm following him whom I had not followed previously. That's what grace does. That's the call of the gospel. That's the power. And Paul says now that that call has come to you. I beseech you, brethren. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation of the call wherewith you're called. In other words, now as believers, you and I are called to dignify in a proper sense the call of grace that's come to us to show the worth of the good news to the world, to the Lord's people. We're called to show the, the value, 
the premium that should be set on knowing Jesus Christ. Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. Now, Paul is writing, as verse 1 makes clear, as the prisoner of the Lord. I don't know. If you were in prison, think about this just a moment with me. If you were in prison, what would you write to God's people practically to tell them? You know, there, there, there are a number of things that have been written from prison. Uh, John Bunyan is said to have written Pilgrim's Progress while in prison at Bedford, England. Ian Paisley, when he was imprisoned in Ireland, he wrote a commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans. Martin Luther King Jr., when he was imprisoned in Birmingham in jail, he wrote a letter to the white clergy of Birmingham declaring why he was involved in the civil rights struggle. If you were writing God's people, what would be your focus to say to them? For Paul, as he moves from the wealth to the walk, the first thing that he says about dignifying the call of the gospel, about showing the worth, the value of the gospel, relates to unity. That's interesting to me. Paul surely is the prisoner of the Lord, writing from Rome, many say, and some would add Caesarea, but I believe Rome's probably correct. As Paul writes as a prisoner, what's the burden of your heart? And Paul wants to remind God's people, as you dignify the gospel in your walk, as you show the worth of the call that's come to you in grace, God's people be united. And that's what we find in verses 2 and 3. Notice it. Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called with all lowliness and meekness, forbearing one another, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, the particular goal in view is verse 3, that you and I are to make every effort. Uh, the, Greek, the Greek word is spadazo. Endeavoring is fine in the King James. Other translations can be given. But we're to, we're to make every effort to keep the unity that the Spirit has already produced. You and I aren't making this unity. It's already been made when the Spirit of God called us by grace into Christ Jesus. And what we're to do now is to endeavor to make every effort to keep, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Because there are plenty of things that can come along that the devil would use, the world would use, and even our flesh would use to try to somehow derail that unity. Now, verse 2 comes in between verses 1 and 3. That's not just a mathematical statement. Isn't my preaching deep, y'all? <laughs> But verse 2 tells us what you're going to have to bring to the table if you're going to walk worthy like this. And what's it going to call for? With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Think about that. You mean if I'm going to get along with you and you're going to get along with me, we're going to have to have lowliness and meekness, that is, humility of mind, you mean we're even going to have to have long-suffering? The Greek word makrothumia here. Makrothumia. I was a student in Greek at UNC Chapel Hill. <laughs> Regrettably, who lost to Duke last night, by the way. Uh, that was free, no extra charge. <laughs> but when I was a student there at Chapel Hill in Greek, uh, I was sitting in a class with Mr. William West. He taught both Greek and Latin. Very learned man. And we were talking, we were reading the letters of Cicero in Latin. And he was talking about the word in Latin, perseverantia. And that word is our word, perseverance, if you bring it over from Latin. Perseverantia. And he said, what does that mean? And, and uh, the class was, you know, talking about it a bit. And I spoke up and said, well, it's like the Greek word makrothemia. Well, here was a Greek professor. And I got one on him. Because he said, macrothemia, what is that? I said, what is the Pauline word for long-suffering in Galatians 5 when Paul speaks about the fruit of the Spirit? He said, hmm, macrothemia, long-suffering. Yes, that's right. But it was a word that he knew nothing about from his classical Greek background, macrothemia, long-suffering. 
may I give to a, a brief exegetical, expository, and theological definition of long suffering? It's suffering long. <laughs> the light went on, didn't it? Yeah. I, I kind of built it up a little bit deceptively, I guess. But you know, sometimes we wanna we wanna flesh out these Bible words in ways that ease the pressure. But I can't lance this wound apart from the Spirit of God taking me and saying, David, what about your wife? Do you exercise macrothemia with her? David, what about your children? Do you exercise long-suffering? David, what about God's people? Are you short with them? Or do you have a heart that says, Lord... You're long-suffering with me. God, give me that kind of spirit for others. That's what Paul says we got to bring to the table. And he even uses the word, after long-suffering, forbearing one another. That that's, means putting up with one another. Sometimes I just have to tolerate you. And sometimes you just have to tolerate me. I like the way one brother put it in a little couplet. He said, to dwell above with saints in love, I that will be glory. To dwell below with saints I know, now that's a different story. (laughs) Sometimes it is, isn't it? But brothers and sisters, the reality is, I appreciate too the sense of love that's in this house. Amen. And the body here. But don't forget, in the midst of that love and the Spirit's presence you sense, There's an adversary who would like to do all he could to try to change that, to try to turn the thermostat down so that God's people become cold as ice toward one another. Paul says, walk worthy, child of God. Let's move on, though, because we've got some more ground to cover. Drop with me further, if you would, to the words of Ephesians 4, 17. And here again, Paul speaks to God's people and he continues to focus on the believer's walk. There's much we could add to the idea of the walk of dignity that shows unity as it follows beyond verse 3 and into really through to verse 16. As as the gifts Christ has given to his church for the benefit of the body are are unpacked. But let's drop to verse 17 of chapter 4. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. I had to pass that on because that's really where the, that's where the pivot point is. You see, Paul here speaks now about a walk of distinction for God's people at Ephesus. Many of them were Gentiles. As we mentioned earlier, called by God's sovereign grace, effectually that vocation came and they were called out of darkness and death to light and life. And so now the apostle, as he speaks about the walk of believers, reminds them that they are now to walk not as other Gentiles, not as, as others from the nations walk. There's to be a walk that's distinct. Now, this has already been touched on by Paul earlier in chapter 2 when he says about our death in sin, where we were quickened. He says about those sins and trespasses in which we were dead, wherein we once walked according to the course of this world. But as he takes us beyond those words to the quickening power of God and the grace that saved us without works, faith, the gift of God. He says in verse 10 of chapter 2, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good, good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. No longer walking where I used to walk. Walking now, praise God, in good works. Oh, not perfectly. No, but there's been a saving difference. There's been a change that's come. And now in verse 17 of chapter 4, Paul tells God's people, you do this. Don't walk as other Gentiles walk. I I testify in the Lord. This is the kind of lifestyle that should mark you as God's people. What does that mean, though? How does that translate? Because there are 
lot of different answers given as to how we should not walk as other Gentiles walk. My wife and family and I had the privilege on two different occasions of living in Pennsylvania, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, one of the four commonwealths in the, in the country, by the way. I think Massachusetts, Kentucky, and uh, Virginia, that's right, the other one. I knew that, but it just didn't come. It's brain fog, not old age, though, okay? <laughs> four commonwealths. Pennsylvania is one of them, and Pennsylvania... Uh, much like Ohio is noted for Amish people or the plain people they're sometimes called. I remember hearing a story about a woman who had gone to church. Now, the, the old order Amish, they go to uh, their homes. They don't meet in church buildings. But, but in this particular case, these, these, uh, were, were, they had a, a meeting place. And uh, as they left meeting that day, one of the uh, ladies' wife said to her husband, Honey, I believe we were the plainest people there today. Uh, what was intended to promote humility did what? Promoted pride. And a lot of times we think in terms of if I could just put away some externals, I could uh, not look like the world. The only problem is whatever externals you put away, they're going to find somebody in the world who has those same externals, you know. Notice Paul doesn't speak about externals as he talks about walk not as other Gentiles walk. For at the end of verse 17, he says, how? Walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. Everything he says about not walking like the world walks is more spiritual and mental in character and focus. And he begins with that thought in the vanity of their mind. Oh, that word vanity, emptiness. You remember the words of Ecclesiastes, uh, vanity of vanity, saith the preacher. All is vanity, emptiness of emptinesses. All is emptiness. Oh, that's where we lived, brothers and sisters, before grace intercepted our lives, before we, as verse 20 says, learned Christ. We lived in emptiness. And it doesn't matter if it was rich emptiness. It doesn't matter if it was poor emptiness. It doesn't matter if it was religious emptiness or if it was irreligious emptiness. Before we met Christ, we were walking in emptiness. We were walking in that which is marked by vanity. I like occasionally to, to listen to the radio and I'll hear a song that from the past, and I apologize for that as some of you might be in any way nettled by it, but uh, I was actually channel surfing yesterday as I came over the mountains. And uh, ladies, it's a man thing. Don't try to figure it out. But we do that, you know, it's just that button is there to push, you know. Amen. Thank you, Tom. I got a witness there. But uh, a song came on. And I realize this is going to make me look very less than spiritual, but I'm going to tell you anyway. It was Jimmy Buffett. And he was wasting away again in Margaritaville. <laughs> hmm. You know. It's such a catchy tune, though. You know. <laughs> but y'all remember that, that last stanza? Some of you will. Some of you maybe not have a clue. What is he plugged into, you know? But y'all remember the, that stanza that says, uh, blew out my flip-flop, stepped on a pop-top, cut my heel, had to cruise on back home. But there's booze in the blender, and soon it will render that frozen concoction that helps me hang on, wasting away again in Margaritaville, looking for my lost shaker of salt. Think about that. That frozen concoction that helps me hang on. Is that living in vanity? I'd say it is. And he recognized that because what did he go on? The next line, wasting away again in Margaritaville. See, that's where life is apart from Christ. Emptiness, vanity, waste. 
hanging on to something that can't really help me hang on. Oh, that's where the world is. I, I think about Miss Johnny Mitchell's song. You remember that? Allow me to again show my lack of spirituality, okay? I know Jim will remember this because he's as old as I am. Look, actually, a little older, right? Some of What's that? Rub it in. Not much to rub, brother, because I'm not far behind you. <laughs> but some of you remember Ms. Mitchell's, Judy Collins sang the song, I think, better than Ms. Mitchell. But uh, y'all remember the song about both sides now, clouds? She says, I've looked at clouds from both sides now, from in and out, and still somehow it's clouds illusions, I recall. I really don't know clouds at all. But then she goes on to say that about love, remember. But she ends the song by saying that about life. I've looked at life from both sides now, from in and out, and still somehow it's life's illusions, I recall. I really don't know life at all. Oh, that's the indictment of the nations that... In our lost condition, we don't know life at all. Living in vanity, living in emptiness, illusions. Thank God for the truth of the gospel. Thank God for the power of the gospel. Thank God that in the midst of our lost state, we learned Christ. How do we learn Christ? By the power of God, by sovereign grace. By a call that came to me and interrupted me on my mad rush to hell. I was going to hell and happy of it. But grace intercepted me. And now I don't have to live in that emptiness anymore. I don't have to live in the vanity of the mind that marks people who have no idea of what life's all about. I don't have to live anymore with the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that was in me because now I've been connected to the life of God in Christ Jesus. And because of that, brothers and sisters, you and I can live differently. Why? Because we are different. We can act as those who show to the world something that is worthwhile in life in the midst of all the wasting away that goes on by those who say, I really don't know life at all because you and I have been brought to know him who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that, brothers and sisters, connected us. I, I love the way the apostle goes on to express. I didn't read verse 21. Allow me to do so. He says, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Then he goes on to speak of putting off and putting on. But we now have a different lifestyle because we have a different life. We know the one who is life itself. And so we have this walk and that that would be a walk of distinction. Well, I need to move on quickly and pick up the pace even more. But drop down with me to chapter 5, verse 2. We'll read verse 1 as well. But as the apostle speaks to God's people... Concerning the believer's walk, he goes on to say, chapter 5, verse 1, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Oh, what's this? It, it, it's a walk of, I'm going to try to keep the alliteration and say a walk of devotion. Because love passes under so many definitions and a lot of them are strange today. I grew up in the 60s and of course the common line was to a, a young man talking to a young lady, if you love me, you'll show me. And all he meant was he wanted to better. He didn't want to show any real love. He had his own heart in view. Well, not even his heart, I guess. But you know, love passes under many different definitions. The Greek word agape or agapao, often called the God kind of love. I think that's accurate. It's been distinguished from phileo and storge, and time won't permit to go into all of that. But, but the thing that marks agapao here is that it is a devotion that grows out of a calculation. Now, we don't think about love that way, right? We think about love as an emotion. And it, it involves emotion, yes. But... Love involves decision. Love involves calculation. And that purpose to love then leads to devotion in life. 
And that's what Paul is telling God's people here. And he gives us an example of it that I believe drives that home in verse 2. As he says, and walk in love. How? As Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice for a sweet-smelling savor. Christ's love for us was calculated. He loved me before the world began. I like the way Mr. Spurgeon put it when he said, God surely must have chosen me before I came into the world. He'd have never done so afterwards. <laughs> but he loved me. Christ purposed to love me. The Father purposed to love me before the world began. He knew what I was. He knew what I'd be. He knew everything about me. But he said, I will have you. You will be mine. But in order for that to be true, the darling son of God had to pay a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. That debt was eternal death under the wrath of God in the lake of fire. Now, we could never have paid it eternally because we never finished paying the debt. But the God man in the eternity of his being, he could pay that debt. On the cross in three hours. So many say if hell's eternal, how could Jesus pay it on the cross and be done with it? Say it is finished. The answer to that I give you is this. To, to pay for sin is not original with me, by the way. Anselm of Canterbury is the one who kind of cataloged it. But he said to pay for sin requires that either the finite suffer infinitely or the infinite suffer finitely. You and I finite creatures have to pay the penalty forever in hell because the finite suffers infinitely for that eternal sin. But Christ, the eternal God, is an infinite sufferer. He only suffered finitely to pay the penalty that you and I owed. But that involved calculation. That involved devotion. That involved not just saying, I love you. But the action that led to our release from that which enslaved and held us and would have done so eternally. He gave himself to God a sacrifice and offering for us for a sweet smell and savor. And that becomes our model for love. And Paul has already said it in effect in Ephesians 4.32, but notice he said back there, Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Man, that's a standard. Yeah. You know, we want to say, I love you. I remember, pardon me here again, I'm going to show the depth of my education, but I remember an old Bazooka Joe comic any of y'all remember Bazooka Joe Gum? Bazooka Joe comic. I think it was Herman. You know, the one who had his sweater up to his nose. Herman was saying to his girlfriend on the phone, I'd swim the deepest river for you. I'd cross the highest mountain for you. I'd, I'd uh, uh, climb, I'd cross the widest valley for you. I'd climb the highest mountain for you. Then the last frame showed, but I can't come over tonight. It's raining. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how thin our love is so often. You and I, though, are called to walk in love. How? As Christ had loved us with that devotion that marks the kind of love that is, in fact, show enough love. The kind of love that is bona fide, real love. And that, brothers and sisters, is what we have in Christ. Now, I need to move on again quickly because of the time. Uh, but if you would, drop down in chapter 5 again to verse 8. Paul has been talking about the things that mark the world in regard to particularly sexual sin, but, but other types of sin as well, covetousness and other things. And as he does that, he speaks in verse 7, he says, Be, be not ye therefore partakers with them, for ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. If you will, we have here a, a walk of light or a walk of daylight. I love that song that we sometimes sing, Heavenly Sunlight. You remember that chorus? Heavenly Sunlight, Heavenly Sunlight, flooding my soul with glory divine. Hallelujah. I'm rejoicing, singing His praises. Jesus is mine. You see, I was in darkness. 
And in that darkness, I had no clue. But now the light of the gospel is shown on my life. The light of Christ is shown on my life. And as a result, I am now to walk as one who is a child of light. There's to be a difference that impacts my life and informs me here. For I was darkness. I remember the darkness. To use the words of a songwriter of the 70s. I remember days of lonely living, giving me pleasure, pain and pride, guilty shame and emptiness. Lord, a dead man lived inside me. But then you came into my night, flooded it with your truth and light. Your gentle hands restored my sight to save my life. You were crucified. That's what happened. That's where we were, that emptiness, that darkness. But thank God the light of the gospel crossed us. And as it did, you and I now can walk as he walked, walk in love. And oh, brothers and sisters, walk in light. You remember what Christ said in John 9 when he healed the blind man? There that man was in darkness. And the Lord Jesus said, walk in light. He talked about the, the, the light shining and how you and I can live in that light. God granted that we do so. Well, I've got one more and we have done with it. And I, I should have taken a little more time because now I've got too much at the end. That's a bad problem to have for a preacher. You don't want to let people out early. If you let them out early, they might expect it, you know. If you let them out later, then when you let them out on time, they get appreciative, you know. This is called congregational love. But let's look at our final one here. Verse 15. The believer's walk is seen in chapter 5, verse 15 in this way. See then that she walks circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Here you and I are to have a walk of wisdom or a walk of discernment. As we look at life, we, 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 we're called to walk circumspectly. The Greek word is akrobos. It means literally accurately. But, but I like the way the King James gives it here, circumspectly, because there's some Latin roots here that, that, that come together in that word circumspectly. Circum around. Speckly looking. In other words, as you walk child of God in this world, you need to be looking around, looking at life accurately, looking at life rightly, looking at life wisely, looking at life with discernment because our tendency is not to do that. We all do some stupid things, you know. And sometimes stupid can become where we live. Now, I'm not talking about people in Tennessee, of course, especially the Nashville, you know, the folk in North Carolina, right? <laughs> but here the scriptures call us to wisdom, but that brings up a, a problem, an issue. What is wisdom? Because the world has its definition of wisdom, and that changes from age to age, doesn't it? Socrates, Plato, Aristotle's wisdom, not our wisdom today. And he who marries the wisdom of this age will in the next age be a widower. What is wisdom? Well, I hear Job say in that book that is somewhat, that chapter which is somewhat the center of the book of Job, chapter 28, when he talks about what the hawk hasn't seen, when he takes us down to the depths of the earth where men are finding metals and precious gems. It was going on back then, 4,000 years ago or so. And he said, even there man can't find it because the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. You see, God's take on wisdom is not the world's take on wisdom. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 1 when he says the preaching of the gospel is to them that perish foolishness. But he says we preach Christ crucified and it is to them that are called Christ, the power of God, Christ, the wisdom of God. 
And that wisdom instructs us as we think particularly about the wisdom books of Scripture. Proverbs, we've mentioned Ecclesiastes earlier. Those books tell us that the fear of the Lord, that proper regard and recognition of who God is that translates into reverence in my life. A proper due respect for Him. That's what wisdom is. Oh, I need that. Lord willing, this, this September... I'll be 45 years in Christ, but I need this wisdom. I need to learn more of what it is to fear him, to have that proper recognition of who he is, and that that will translate into a regard for who he is, and that in turn will translate into a respect for who he is, and that will be wisdom. You and I are called to walk wisely, to walk discerningly. And that means in our lives, we're to redeem the time because the days are evil. In other words, I'm to learn as I fear him redeeming. You know, that's an exchange term. I'm to learn to exchange the good for the better. Or maybe we should start. I'm to learn to exchange the bad for the good. And then I'm to learn to exchange the good for the better and then the better for the best. In other words, my mind is to be transformed by the word of God, by the by the ministry of the word, by the reading of the word, by prayer. My mind is to be transformed. You see, I need to be brainwashed. I remember the story told of a man who believer was told, oh, you Christians, man, you've all been brainwashed. And he said, hey, let me tell you, that's right. He said, but mine were dirty old sick brains anyway. They needed a scrub. And I need my brains to be washed. I need my mind, my heart to be washed by the word of God. Jesus said to his disciples, now are ye clean through the word I've spoken to you. He prayed for us, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. I need the word of God to suffuse my mind so that I can walk rightly, think rightly, look at life rightly. Because I tend not to do that. When I've got the wrong content going in. And what's the adage on data? Garbage in, garbage out. And I need the truth content of Holy Scripture to be going in the eye gate and in the ear gate. I need the truth content of Holy Scripture to be filling me so that I can be wise about life. Because if I don't have that... I don't have the mind fixer and the heart regulator I need in life. I need him to be my mind fixer. I need him to take out his toolbox, the scriptures, by the spirit to get to work so that I can think discerningly and I can realize the highest goal for life is doing the will of God to the glory of God and the power of God by his spirit. And that, brothers and sisters, is what the apostle speaks of. Now, he goes on to explain what living wisely is. If I could just point out a few things since we kind of omitted that on our sweep through the last. If if you'll notice verse uh, verse 18, excuse me. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. That's part of wisdom. I need the filling of the Spirit to empower me to live right. How will I serve God in the energy of my flesh? Can't do it. I need a spirit who dwells in me to fill me. And uh, the analogy by way of contrast is drunk with wine. When a person is drunk, that influence of that alcohol affects their mind, affects their vision, affects their speech. They get a little thick tongue sometimes, you know. Well, you know, when I have been filled with the Spirit, it's going to influence me in those same areas. My thinking, my vision, my speech. We sang, Be Thou My Vision. And right next to that was that hymn, May the mind of Christ my Savior dwell in me, live in me from day to day. Oh, brothers and sisters, 
That's what we need, the, the, the mind of Christ being my wisdom, the mind of Christ leading me in the fear of the Lord, the mind of Christ bringing me his spirit's fullness. And then I'll be verses 19 and 20. I'll be speaking in Psalms and hymn to myself. Now, you don't want to hear me speaking to you in them. If you've heard me sing, you'll understand why I say that. But I need to speak into myself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in my heart to the Lord, and then doing what? Giving thanks for all things. Oh, I got to learn that one because I still haven't learned it fully yet. But looking at life wisely, looking at life discerning will make me remember that even the trials of life, God has purposed and ordered for my good. And therefore, I can give thanks for all things. In the name of the Lord Jesus. God help me to do that. Brothers and sisters, this is our walk. Or this is, excuse me, to be our walk. May God grant us that we could, by his grace, walk as we're told. God grant that to me. I... I don't preach one thing to you this morning that I tell you I desperately need it for myself. God grant us to love the Lord Jesus Christ. God grant us to have, as he said to Ephesus, remember his concern with Ephesus, I have somewhat against you. You've left your first love. God help us to love Christ with that first love so that we would walk as we're called to walk. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.